0: Hey guys, it's Albert. we got a fantastic show coming for you this week. Takeaways on every angle of the mega trade of last week. The Eagles, the Niners, the Dolphins. we got a great guest coming in to help give us some insight into what it's like to be the new man in charge for an NFL team. And of course, we get to all of your questions in the six pack. Let's go. All right, welcome in got four weeks to go until the NFL Draft. It's almost April. We are into the thick of draft season. It's the Albert Breer Show. Got an awesome guest coming for you this week. I cannot wait for you guys to hear from him. We're going to get to your questions in the six-pack. But this week, because there's been so much news, we'll jump right into the takeaways. And my first takeaway, of course, involves the mega trade that went down on Friday. Really, in essence, a three-team deal. The Niners moving up from 12 to three. The Dolphins moving down from three to six. The Eagles moving down from six to 12. So my first three takeaways. We're going to look at how this involved, how, how this affects each of those teams, and we'll start right off the bat with the team that instigated all of this. The team that was making calls at the beginning of March. And initiating the idea that they could move up, the team that did all of the homework on all of the quarterbacks that are going to be available in this year's draft in January and February involved so many of their staff members: John Lynch, Adam Peters, uh, you know, Mike McDaniel, Kyle Shanahan, Bobby Slowick, Rich Scan, the scouts. Like they did a ton of homework on the quarterbacks very quietly in January and February, made the decision to move up from twelve to three, and so the Niners now. and This is an important piece control the process. And so my first takeaway, I'm going to give you something I'd be somewhat worried about if I was the Niners, if I was a Niners fan, and something I would not be worried about at all if I was a Niners fan. Let's start with the latter. What I wouldn't be worried at all about at all is Kyle Shanahan's ability to evaluate quarterbacks. They've got a lot of good quarterbacks people in the building. John Lynch and Adam Peters are high-end evaluators. They've got a really strong scouting department. And that staff is full of people who see the game like Kyle does. Guys like Mike McDaniel, Rich Gangarillo, Bobby Slowick, the guys that I mentioned there. Uh, I have no doubt that they are going to evaluate the quarterback class on a level that is on par with anyone in football. And so if I'm a 49ers fan right now, I have full confidence that Kyle Shanahan and John Lynch are going to get this right and are going to take the right quarterback with the third overall pick with the information that they have right now, things can change over the years, but with the information they have right now, what I would worry about a little bit, if this is indeed Mac Jones and I have heard about, I have heard all the buzz that everybody else has, that this could be the Alabama quarterback. The one thing I would be worried about a little bit would be whether or not this was an overreach again, if it's Trey Lance, if it's Justin Fields, different story. And I, I, still they're gonna the Niners are going through the process with all three of those guys and they are going to dig through every inch of those guys and they believe all three all, all three of those guys in addition to Trevor Lawrence and Zach Wilson like they, there are five first-round quarterbacks in this year's draft in the Niners mind so they're gonna go through the process with those guys if it is Mac Jones though the one thing that I would be a just a little concerned with did we need to move up did we need to mortgage for future ones to do it and Like, look, I've talked to NFL people who don't think Mac Jones is a first-round pick, and these are people that, like, don't need quarterbacks, right? Like, so there's no reason for them to be blowing smoke. Um, And then I've talked to other people who really like him and who think the league in general is higher on him than the general public realizes. So, like, again, like, I wouldn't be worried that Kyle and John and their staffs get this right. I think they'll get it right. I think they'll get the best quarterback for them. My worry would be, again, if it is Mac Jones, did you need to move all the way up from 3 to 12? Because I would have told you a week ago, Mac Jones probably would be sitting for them at 12 if they just waited. And the caveat to all of that, of course, is if you get it right, if Mac Jones or Justin Fields or Trey Lance is your quarterback for the next 15 years, doesn't matter what you gave up. No one remembers what the Broncos gave up for John Elway in 1983 they just remember that the Broncos moved aggressively and went and got John Elway from the Baltimore Colts all those years ago so again more to be excited about than to be worried about if you're a Niners fan it's just interesting to see that move up if it is for a quarterback that I think many of us felt like might slip a little bit takeaway number two Miami's involvement of the in this is interesting now very clearly because you know when this whole thing started and if you read my my Monday column, you know how it worked. The Niners engaged the Dolphins. The Dolphins didn't want to go all the way back to 12, so then the Dolphins had to go engage another partner, and so they wind up getting back up to six. Why is that interesting? Well, I mean, part of it is, you know, if you're the Dolphins, you know we're going to get one of the two best position players in all likelihood in the draft if we can get back up to six, right? Because you figure now, One's quarterback, two's a quarterback, three's a quarterback, and four probably will be. Atlanta's done all the homework on the quarterback. They've done every bit as much of the digging that the Jets have done at two, the Niners will now do at three, and have done over the last couple of months, that the Jaguars have done on Trevor Lawrence. They've done all the digging. So the Falcons, I think, either take one, or if they decide not to take one, I I think that they may be wind up trading out and a team comes up to go get one. So the likelihood is quarterbacks go one, two, three, four for the first time in draft history and the Dolphins, by staying inside the top six, guarantee themselves one of their top two non-quarterbacks in the draft. Could be Kyle Pitts, could be Jamar Chase, could be Penay Sewell. They'll If they sit there and pick, they'll get one. But here's what's more interesting about it to me. They also stayed in front of Carolina and they stayed in front of Denver. And in staying in front of Carolina and staying in front of Denver, that means they have a higher pick to potentially offer the Houston Texans than the Panthers or the Broncos do. And if Deshaun Watson could become available, and we're going to get into this with our guest, comes available soon, and the Texans want a 2021 pick as the centerpiece of the deal, now the Dolphins can offer six whereas the Panthers can only offer eight, the Broncos can only offer nine. And so, look, there are lots of hoops to jump through. There's a very serious uh, you know, invest, league investigation going on and obviously the lawsuits and everything else. And so This thing's still really murky, and any team that's pursuing Deshaun Watson would need to have sign-off from the owners, but from ownership. But I just think it's at least interesting that the Dolphins sit there now having – built up some more draft capital and chris greer can still sort of offer something that denver and carolina can't if those teams are in on deshaun and not only can they offer six they can also offer 18 so it sort of puts them in pole position if deshaun watson were to truly become available takeaway number three the third team in the deal the philadelphia eagles and you 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 look at where they are, and to me, seeing what Howie Roseman did, Nick Sirianni, the new head coach there, what they did was they set this up to be a turn the page year for the franchise. You get an evaluation of Jalen Hurts this year. You give Nick Sirianni a year to grow, and I think in a lot of ways they are where New England was last year, where New England had a lot of a lot uh, just a lot of cap issues to sort out. So, New England ate a lot of dead cap last year, and New England knew it had to get younger, and so they played a lot of young guys. And now they come out of that, New England comes out of that, and they they get aggressive in free agency. They, uh, you know, obviously have some draft capital over the next couple of years, and so now New England is in, New England came into this year in this position to reset. And I think the Eagles, in doing this, and doing what they did here, have put themselves in a position to reset in 2022. They have 20 picks over the next two years. Next year, at the very least, they'll have two ones and two twos. If Carson Wentz plays, just plays, in Indianapolis, they'll wind up having three ones next year. They're going to eat a bunch of their dead cap this year. Next year, they'll have a lot more flexibility to do things. And with the cap flexibility and with the amount of draft capital they have next year, they're going to be in a position to pull every lever to get younger through the draft, through free agency trades and so and and you, you'd think by then they'll have an answer on who Jalen Hurts is so maybe they're in position to take a quarterback if Hurts isn't the answer next year so I just think you look at where the Eagles are and it sort of sets up 21 as a transitional year with a new coaching staff and I think it's like a really smart way of setting yourself up for a very very important offseason in 2022. Takeaway number four I wouldn't bet against Justin Fields and well, I'm, I'm recording this a couple hours before he's going to go out and throw at his pro day. Here's what I would say. He's still a little raw. He needs to play more. I think every coach on Ohio State staff would tell you he needs to play more. And he may have benefited from playing another year in, at school. I think there's he's one of these kids where like you can't like go back to school because you're going to be a top 10 pick. And there's so much money that's, that's on the line, so you, you, you can't put that in peril. But... Like he would have been he probably would have benefited from just playing more. And that's not his fault. Like he has twenty two college starts. Like when he was in high school, he's a multi sport athlete. So he just needs to play more, he needs to learn more. But and you guys can call me on this after it's done, the coaches there at Ohio State expect him to run low four fours. That's what he's that's what he's run over his career at Ohio State. I know he said that he thinks that he might be able to get into the four threes. He's got the the arm to put the ball anywhere on the field, and you know he has toughness and competitiveness a plus, right? Like a plus in those areas. So where do you need work? He needs to get the ball out quicker. He needs to anticipate better. He needs to see the field a little faster. But he has the bones of being able to do that. He's an intelligent kid who has good instincts out there on the field, and so. You know, I think a lot of this is going to come down to who is comfortable with the projection and who is comfortable looking at him and saying we can take him and make him into something that we can take him and make him into something that maybe he would have become if he had stayed in school an extra year and two, three years from now, you're going to be looking at him, looking at him and saying this guy has the ability to be the first overall pick in any draft, which I believe he does. And to me, like the, maybe the best comp I heard on him was Justin Herbert and not like stylistically, they're the same, but just Justin Herbert was on the radar for so long that people picked him apart. And by the time you got to the draft, everybody was talking about what he couldn't do rather than what he could do. And you kind of missed how like, my God, like Justin Herbert, six, six, put the ball anywhere he wants to put it. He's an athlete. Like, like a lot of those things apply to Justin Fields stylistically, not the same player. But he's played on a lot of big stages, and I do think there's that overexposure thing. So I think someone's going to get a good one in Justin Fields, the right kind of kid, like very different personality-wise from Dwayne Haskins. I know everybody wants to compare the two. Um, You know, he like like he's been a little quiet, but he's started to find his voice. You know, as a junior at Ohio State, I think big things are ahead for Justin Fields. And you know, if it's like right now, I think I'd probably put him in Atlanta at number four. he goes to a place where he can sit and learn for a year behind somebody like Matt Ryan, I think he could wind up being really good. Takeaway number five, you're going to hear on Tuesday and Wednesday all the stuff that's getting voted through by NFL owners. 17 games, what the preseason is going to look like, how the schedule is going to work out. The Super Bowl is going to get moved from February 6th to the 13th. Now the way that the NFL calendar is going to work in the summer. The Labor Labor Day weekend is going to be an open weekend. That where that fourth preseason game is. There aren't going to be any preseason games. We're going to have two weeks behind the final between the final preseason game and the opener. All these changes are coming. Do not ignore what I think is a really big one, which is the NFL is trying to go to Germany and probably going to Germany soon and looking to spread out a little bit more and potentially going to Brazil down the line. I just think like such a huge part of what they're doing here, and you look at like the way that they're. The, the way that, like, and I, look, I have the 25-page agenda. So much of what they're doing with the new television deals and the 17-game schedule flows right into international, and a Germany, to me, like, and I know we got German fans out there that listen, Germany, to me, is like, it was, it's been a no-brainer to go there forever. Now, I know the TV distribution was an issue. There's probably not the, I guess, financial incentive to go there like there was in London, you know, whatever it was, 14 years ago. But, I mean, they've actually, like, produced NFL players. Like, Bjorn Werner, who was the first-round pick of the Colts. Sebastian Vollmer, who was the right tackle for the Patriots for all those years. Those guys are German-born. Germany has produced players. There's a reason why NFL Europe was centralized in Germany for so many years. Like, I think it was five of the six teams at the end were in Germany. And so, I think going to Munich Munich or Berlin um, in the near future is a big step for the NFL. And the idea of having Oktoberfest in Munich or Berlin, it, like like, like, put an NFL game there during Oktoberfest just sounds incredible. So good for the NFL. I think it's good for the sport and good for all of us if we get to make those trips too to go over to Germany because it'd, it'd be a great time having NFL games over there. And we will get to our special guests right after this. All right, we're gonna welcome in a guy uh, that I go pretty, you no, know, I go a little ways back with, who uh, actually used to live pretty much right down the street from me, and uh, now lives on the other side of the country. We're excited to bring him in. Uh, welcome in uh, Texans GM Nick Casario. Nick, I appreciate you coming out.
1: Thanks, Bird. Appreciate you having me. Let's not date ourselves too much now. I <laughs> yeah.
0: Think. Well. Like Just so everybody knows, uh, I still remember Nick as the receivers coach, and I believe, and Nick, correct me if I'm wrong, you were the receivers coach when Randy Moss and Wes Welker and Dante Stallworth uh, were on the team, right? And so you made those guys what they were that year.
1: That, that's correct. Yeah, exactly. That was actually my first full-time uh, NFL coaching job, so... um so, I, really, their success had nothing to do with anything I was telling them. So, but uh, that was an awesome group to, uh, awesome group to coach. It really was.
0: All right. So, um, so obviously, I want to start with the news, and, and obviously, you guys have been in the news a lot over the last uh, over the last couple of months. So, if you could, um, just where do things stand with Deshaun Watson right now? Obviously, I'm not going to ask you to comment on the legal stuff because that's going to work itself out. Do you still view Deshaun Watson as the starting quarterback of the Houston Texans and plan for him to be the starting quarterback of the Texans in week one?
1: Yeah. A couple of things. Like you said, I think the legal process is is kind of a separate entity. Um, that's a pretty active situation. Um, so, you know, we'll leave that to, um, you know, to the authorities and, and from that perspective um, as it pertains to the team, uh, honestly, Bert, I mean, we're kind of day to day with everything, with everybody. Um, so we've, From the beginning since i've taken the job to now we've had a lot of a lot of change and there's been a lot of activity um i would suspect you know as we work towards the start of training camp and into the regular season that will continually uh that will continually have some adjustments and changes to the roster what those look like what that entails like you know not really sure so at this point we're just day-to-day um and we're just kind of going through it one day at a time and trying to get ready for the next phase of potentially what we think is the offseason which will be um, the offseason program, so we have the opportunity, hopefully, to to, to work with the players and get them here. So, um, so that's kind of what I would say, just as it pertains to pertains to that situation.
0: Okay, you have said that Deshaun is your quarterback, and you plan for Deshaun to be your quarterback. Do you still feel that way?
1: Yeah, I think we'll take it one day at a time, and um, you know, I think everything is is pretty fluid here, um, and we'll uh, you know we'll adjust as we go, and ultimately, okay. I think we'll do what we feel is best for the Houston Texans organizationally.
0: Okay. So you'd be open to a trade?
1: I think ultimately we'll do what we feel is best for the organization.
0: Okay. Um, Have you talked to them?
1: Yeah. I don't want to get any any comment about what conversations have taken place with players. I think I've talked to a lot of different players. Um, You know, those conversations are private. Those conversations are to remain between the respective parties. And I think that's out of respect to to everybody involved.
0: Okay. Okay. you know, obviously now you've had three we- about three months, I think, um, in the building um, to set things up to hire a coach. Um, you know, the other thing that's sort of a you know big topic of conversation down there is the role of Jack Easterby. You and Jack obviously go way back; you know him really well. Um, can you give me an idea of like how his role flows into your role, and kind of how Jack's role has evolved now? Maybe that you're in the building as the guy who's in charge of football operations.
1: Yeah, uh, I've known Jack a long time, uh, probably longer than anybody um, in the building here in Houston. Um, I think Jack is very gifted. Um, He's got a lot of great qualities. Um, I can't really speak about what has happened in the past relative to his role. Uh, I would say there's a lot of people um, in the building. Um, Everybody has an important job and an important responsibility. Uh, The way that we're set up organizationally, um, that the way the McNair's have have granted me the responsibility is to oversee all football decisions as it pertains to the roster. Um, And that's working in conjunction uh, with Coach Cully and his staff. I think the last two to three months have been indicative of that. Uh, We've had uh, multiple meetings and conversations about our team, about prospective players that we're going to bring in. Um, And those conversations have uh, have been very uh, beneficial um, and very fruitful. Um, so I think if you speak to anybody, um, a lot of people, a lot of players, um, I'd say some pretty good players through the years, you know, whether it's Matthew Slater, Tom Brady, uh, you know, James White, David Andrews, the list goes on and on. I mean, Jack's impact in our team and in the building, uh, was pretty significant. Uh, I think you'd find to a man that how they feel about him and, um, you know, Jack's an important part of what we're doing, um. And I think, uh, you know, we should all be grateful that, that he's here and he's got plenty of responsibility, um, that he, you know, that he's been given. Um, but as it pertains to football decision-making and football roster building and those types of things, that's the reason that I was brought in. Um, and that's my responsibility and Jack has his role. Um, just like a lot of other people do within the football department.
0: Obviously there's a lot of like overlap, right. Though like there's some things that are probably in his department to touch football, so, like, I'm wondering if you can kind of, like, because I've heard from New England what sort of resource he was to, to, to the guys there, whether it's players, coaches, Bill. Um, can you give me a good example of maybe, like, what sort of resource he was in New England where you felt like, because obviously part of the decision, you knew Jack was going to be there when he took the job, right? So, like, can you give me a good example of maybe, you know, how, what sort of resource he was to, to you guys in New England that maybe illustrates why you wanted to work with him again?
1: Yeah, I think more than anything, it's not about specific responsibilities or roles whatever, or whatever it is. I think Jack's a quality person. He's a quality human being. Um, he has gifts, um, leadership qualities um, that, that he's been been given. And, um, you know, I think Jack's mentality and mindset has always been to serve and do right by people. Um, I don't think that's changed um, from the time that he was with us in New England and even uh, other places that he's been. And the mindset and mentality has been the same here um, or will be the same here in Houston as well. Um, as you know, a football building and a football operation is various and sundry. There's a thousand things that go into it, right? And the head coach has certain things that he handles, and he needs assistance, whether it's in operations, whether it's logistics, whether it's just the overall operation of the building um, within departments. So one person can't do it. I can't do it. David Culley can't do it. Jack can't do it. So um, Jack has a role. Um, it's an important role in the organization. Um, and everybody has, um, a respective, uh, a role and job that they have to take care of. And, uh, so again, it's not about one particular thing or, or something tangible. I think it's more about, I mean, I have a lot of respect and admiration for Jack who is as human being and the type of person that he is. Um, so I think that that carries a lot of weight.
0: All right. I want to get into kind of you now and, um, where you're at and, uh, I, you know it was interesting I heard that story that David told um, I think it was in the podcast with Weish and, and Trotter uh, where you know he explained you know that moment that he went home and he he visited his 94 year old dad and how significant that was for him. And I know since knowing you a little bit, I know you've probably been go 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 since you got the job. Did you have did you have any moment like that, like where whether it's somebody who is significant in your life where it maybe all hit you at once that you've sort of reached what is the pinnacle of of what any young scout would want to reach?
1: Yeah, I mean, the people that matter the most to me are probably my family, you know, my Mm -hmm. mom and dad, younger brother, and honestly my wife and my three girls. I mean, those are the people that, you know, the most intimate intimate moments that that I've experienced. Those are the people that have probably been the most involved, or who I've shared that with. Um, so again, I mean, I'm I'm grateful and flattered to be given the opportunity to be in the position that I'm in. Um, again, whenever you get there, right, it's not like the end, right? It's really mm-hmm. it's the beginning of something, right? So it's it's a new beginning, it's a new start, and you know we're excited um, for the opportunity that's in front of us. Um, we've been blessed to. to to have been in this league for a long time and to be able to play in, in, in excuse me, be able to be in one organization for, for one period of time. Um, you know, we're, we're we don't, we don't take that, take that lightly. And, you know, there's a lot of great people that have had a lot of impact. I um, have a lot of tremendous relationships, continue to have a lot of tremendous relationships with the people in new England. Um, as a matter of fact, I talk to them on a fairly regular basis. Mm-hmm. So um, again, So I think, you know, part of life is change. Part of life is challenge. And, you know, it's a new beginning. It's a new start. And we're excited for the opportunity in front of us. But I'd say... The, my wife and my three girls, those are the people that are probably, and you never, you know, take a step back and kind of take a deep breath and say, Oh my gosh, we've made it. Cause quite frankly, that's, that's when all the work really starts. Right. So, yeah. Um, but I mean, you
0: had to have a moment where you're like, just like, you like allowed yourself to enjoy it. Right. Like uh, there had to be, that, there had to be like, like, I don't know, like you're sitting on the back deck and you're thinking about whatever it is. Like there had to be some moment where it kind of hit you like, wow, I'm an NFL general manager.
1: Yeah. Uh, I think um those those that know me very well know that I'm pretty low key and I, I yeah. don't get too too excited and too overwhelmed because again it's it's not about a title I mean it's a title it's great and, and I'm blessed and there's only x amount of them in the world right um, mm-hmm. but again it doesn't necessarily mean anything what I care about is is you know how I am as a as a man how I am as a husband how I am as a father um, not necessarily who I am and what I do as a general manager, right? That, that's part of the job and that's my title and that's my responsibility. Um, but there's more to it than that. Um, so again, th- certainly don't take it for granted, um, but try not to take myself too, too seriously, right? And just try <laughs> to focus on the job that's in front of us and, and, you know, just try to maintain perspective, I guess, is the best way. So, um, you know, I know my family is my mom and dad are extremely proud and my brother. Um, but again, I'm, you know, I try to, stay as even keel as possible and and not get too excited but also understand not lose sight of the gravity of what's in you know the position that we've been put in and and what's in front of us so um again i mean we're we're blessed and and fortunate to to be where we are and um you know we're going to try to do the best job that we possibly can from the, the mcnair family and the texans organization
0: okay so i did ask about like your coaching start with a purpose um you know, I, I know you started there. I think it was at Saginaw Valley, right? Like before you got to the Patriots, um, and you had the relationship with Josh, of course, which I think was a part of you landing with the Patriots, right? In fact, if I'm not mistaken, and I don't know if people know this, I think you beat Josh out for the job at John Carroll, which is why he played receiver. Is that right?
1: Well, I think I, I think it's I, I think it's known. I, I don't think it's like a secret. But no, there was a group of us. So what happened yeah. was. There was a group of us that came in. Um, I was ahead of Josh and his class. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> matter of fact, I mean, this is – so, when Joe Perella, who coached us um, at John Carroll, who passed away this um, this fall, mm-hmm. unfortunately, who – I mean, talk about a mentor of mine, somebody that had a significant impact on my life. There was actually – his wife had a picture of our quarterback group from that year. I want to say it was in like 1995. So, it was myself. Josh was in that. My best friend, John Priestap. So there was eight to 10 of us that were in that picture. Um, and then coincidentally, by the end there, so Josh moved positions, he changed positions. And then John um, also played quarterback. John transferred in from Albion College. Um, and then when he showed up at John Curl, he was also quarterback. Then he transitioned to receiver as well. So I would; those are two people that I'm probably like closest with um, in my life. Mm-hmm. So, again, I just went out there and just tried to play. And the coaches decided, like, who, <laughs> who played and, and who played where and, and who didn't.
0: So you got your start like as a coach and like, I'm sure going to New England, you had it in your head. I'm going to become a coach. And I know Bill, when you go in there, they cross train everybody, right? Like, so if you're a young guy, you might be a coach one year, you might be in scouting the next year. Uh, Do you remember when it hit you? Cause I've heard like a lot of guys, I like, I feel like a lot of like guys who come up on the scouting side started wanting to be coaches. Do you remember when you sort of like made the like, okay, like I, I'm okay if I'm not a coach anymore. I'm okay being a scout. I'm okay being off the field. And I know your role was unique in New England, so you got to do some of that stuff still. But do you rem- was there a point in like your you know in the early part of your career where you decided maybe I'll maybe I'll go on the other side of this?
1: Uh, yeah. It it was something that was just presented, and quite frankly, just going back when I came into the NFL, I mean, I had no idea what a personnel department look like what was the actual construct right because again when you play college football and then you start as a GA you're on the coaching side and the NFL has a few more silos right in a few more areas and quite frankly I hadn't been exposed to that before so the opportunity that presented itself in New England was on the, on the scouting side was as a scouting assistant and then it actually grew into more than that the first year because of what happened with coach Rabon right and his unfortunate mm-hmm. passing So there was sort of a reallocation of responsibilities from the beginning. And I think one thing that you learn, and I learned at our very young age, was you have to be ready for just about anything, right? And you have to be ready for change. And the willingness and the openness to have a team-first mindset and to do whatever was asked, regardless of what the role or title was, I think that was something that, was left on me and you realize that, and it wasn't really asked a lot of questions. And then again, so you start to, you transition back, but you're also getting um, an education on another side of the overall team building portion of it, right? Which as we all know, it's really a, a year long process, right? From spring scouting, let's call it April to April. I mean, it's a year long process of player evaluation, right? And everything that goes along with it. So again, there wasn't ever a time where it was, okay, we're on this one track and then we're gonna shift there was a degree of overlap. um, And I just try to maintain as much of an open mind as possible and really whatever uh, they felt was best for the team, then then I was willing to do that. And quite frankly, I didn't really care what what it was. I just wanted to help in some capacity. So I always try to maintain that mindset. And then through the years, it kind of evolved as different people left and we replaced those spots. It was just a, a matter of how do we reallocate our resources um, and ultimately that was the decision that, that Bill um, made that, that he felt was best for, you know, for the group. So um, so I was always open-minded and, mm. you know, there wasn't really a, defi- a finite time where, okay, well, this is going to so happen like, and lead to lit. Yeah. So you didn't that.
0: like decide, like, you didn't just decide, okay, I'm a scout now, right? Like, yeah, I it don't was think just... I
1: like went to bed and the next morning I woke <laughs> up and said all of a sudden, yeah, let's, it's going to be a little bit different. Because I think, you know, there's... There is a certain degree of separation, but there's also a certain amount of overlap too right? right? relative to the team building process. So being able to kind of see it from both sides, I think is one of the things that has helped me throughout the course of my career. And hopefully I've tried to put that experience to good use.
0: Is it fair to say then that after that 07 season that we referenced now, Nick, for those who don't know is the receivers coach for that 07 team that went 18 and one. And I believe, I think I'm right about this. You moved back over to scouting in 08. And then you wound up working like as sort of Scott's number two, right? For a year. Is it fair to say like that may have been the point where it was like, okay, like, you know, my future might be as a general manager rather than as a head coach.
1: Yeah, probably the year that Scott left was kind of that, okay, we probably have to make a decision here, right? About how we Mm -hmm. want to proceed moving forward. Um, So that was probably the time where there may have been a little bit more of a, a shift one way or another. But the one thing that we were always able to do was I was able to maintain some degree of involvement on you know on the coaching side as well <laughs> as a way to help and support the coaching staff um, in whatever way possible. So that probably was, if you want to a, attribute a, a, a time frame to having the cleanest break to that yeah. fork in the road, that was probably the the, the clearest case there.
0: Okay. Um... So let me ask you this then you're in that job now. And I think most people looked at like Scott, you know, from 2000, 2008 as like the de facto GM of the Patriots. <clears throat> and so from Oh nine to 20, then you were in that role. How different is your job now from what you did for those 12 years in new England that you were sort of the, on top of the personnel department?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. Um, we're sort of in the infantile stages here. Um, Relative to what we're doing in Houston. But I would say a lot of the elements are similar relative to essentially you're involved in each aspect of the team team building process. Right. So call it from March to April, free agency, everything that goes along with that. And then once you get through free agency, then you sort of shift gears to the draft preparation. So those things are consistent. I'd say that's kind of where we are uh, for the time being. Um, you know, as we transition to the fall, um, we'll probably have to see exactly what that looks like um, because that had a very uh, distinct uh, skill set and very distinct res- uh, set of responsibilities um, in New England. Um, so, again, I think the most important thing is doing what we feel is best for our organization where we are currently. And, and then again, it's having that servant mindset, that serving-like attitude to assist in whatever role is, in, is, is helpful to, to assist our team. You- so.
0: You were on the headset in New England, um, I know, and like you had had, like you said, like had your had your toe in coaching and sort of kept it there. Do you plan on continuing that in Houston? Do you plan on having any sort of on field involvement or being on the headset on Sunday or any of that?
1: It, nobody probably wants me wearing a headset, but anyways, I mean, again, <laughs> I think like, again we'll we'll figure out what we feel is best from a staffing mm-hmm. perspective. And again, my job is to support and to serve our coaching staff. Ultimately, that's the most important thing that I can do in my role. So whatever that entails, whatever that evolved. I mean, look, no job is too small. So if they need me to go work in the equipment room, I'll go work in the equipment room. If they need to carry the cords on the sideline, because we think that helps the head coach, then I'll carry the cords on the sidelines and help the head coach. So again, it's not going to be my decision. It's not going to be unilaterally like, here's what I think, or here's what I want to do, because it's, it's about the team. And it's not about one individual, and that's how we're going to you know, handle it. And and my job is to serve Coach Cully and his staff and do the best job that I possibly can for him and them. But what separated, David?
0: You know, like, obviously, that's a that, that, that's a big deal. Like, when you're hiring your head coach, and, you know, I, I don't think you'd argue if I said that you worked with the greatest of all time um, in Foxborough. No,
1: no argument here. <laughs> yeah. None. Zero. Yeah.
0: Um, so, like, what would you say, like – like, like, what would you say was the characteristic that really separated David from the pack when you guys were making that decision?
1: Yep, I would say his energy, his enthusiasm, his approach, um, and the fact that he has been um, in multiple programs that I want to say to a certain extent are not too dissimilar to what we're trying to do. Right. So there's been a lot of change. So when he went from Philadelphia to Kansas City um, with with Coach Reed. I think coach was pretty purposeful and in, in having David be associated with that. And when he had the opportunity to go to Buffalo with coach McDermott and with what he was trying to do, um, I think that speaks to who David is as a coach and an individual. And then when John finally had the opportunity to bring him to Baltimore, right. Which they had worked on the staff way back in Philadelphia, right. Which I mean, that kind of was a who's who staff, right. Jimmy Johnson, right. Sean McDermott, coach Reed. I think Ron Leslie Rivera. was on that staff, yeah. Ron Rivera. I mean, it was kind of like a who's who. So, Again, it's never one thing, um, and it's not about what the role is or what that individual has done. I think you have a sense um, as you're going through that process, and, you know, in the end, like, we felt that was the best thing for our organization, Um, and and essentially, David has been everything that we thought he was going to be from the time that he's walked in the the door, his energy, his enthusiasm, his mindset, his positivity, his emphasis on the team, what he expects from the coaches – what he expects from the players that that doesn't change day to day. And I think anybody that has come into contact with him has seen that firsthand and our, our goal and our job is to continue to grow that uh, as we, as we move along here, as we put this team together.
0: Okay. I think like, you know, we all, I I think, you know, everybody was connecting you to coaches, you know, when you were a GM candidate and if he goes, then he could go with this guy, or he could go with that guy. And they were all, you know, from like the Patriot family was like, like how does that make it like really important that you and David build a stronger cause no one's losing games right now. Right. There's like, the, you don't have the stress of that going on, but you do have a lot going on in the organization. Like how have you and David sort of taken time to make sure we're on the same page. I know what you're looking for. You know what I'm looking for. How have you guys kind of tried to carve that time out to learn each other well enough so the whole organization can go?
1: No, it's a great question. Honestly, it's done very organically, Bert. I mean, it's it's mm-hmm. kind of like the platform that we have here, right? You sit in a room, you talk face-to-face, you have open and honest communication, you share ideas back and forth, you get a sense of what are some of the things that are important to him. We articulate some of the things that are important on our end, and then that trickles down to the coaching staff, right? And I think we've tried to be purposeful. Um with what we've we've done with the team here the last however many weeks um and again it doesn't happen overnight so i've known david um we've had a relationship more cordial not necessarily having worked together uh-huh. um but he's the same person he's been the same person in our building as the same as the, at the times that we've interacted whether it's during the season you know whether it's at the scouting combine in indianapolis so again The only way you make progress on anything, right, is to do it collectively and do it together. It's not necessarily what I think Mm -hmm. or about, like, here's what we should do. Here's a suggestion. Just give it some thought. You'll have some input. Take his input. Take input from the coaching staff and then try to reach an end point and then make a decision. And the most important thing is whatever we decision make, it's not my decision. It's our decision. It's the team's decision. And then we're going to move forward with that decision. And if we have to make an adjustment or shift – our gear a little bit then we go ahead and do that so again the only way you make progress in anything is to have open dialogue open honest direct communication and just be and just listen and that's how we've tried to handle it and he's been very receptive we've been hopefully been receptive to one another Um, and again I would anticipate that's the the format it's going to take. Uh, moving forward. And there's always going to be moving parts, as you know, covering the league. I mean, the one thing about the NFL that's constant is change, right? Mm-hmm. And the ability to adapt and be flexible and be open-minded. So when you have somebody that shares those same beliefs and understands that mindset, then it makes it a little bit easier. And hopefully you can make some progress together.
0: One thing that's sort of like, I guess, a common question then too, like as you guys try to build what the Texans are going to be it, with people who come from Foxborough is like, And I, I, this is a common criticism. I'm not going to point the finger at anybody, but you know, like there's like, is it? Are they just trying to be Patriots South or Patriots West or whatever? You've heard it, you know. So, like, how do you like balance like taking everything that you've learned from the one place that you've worked in the NFL and all the success that you've had and all the validation of all the things that you guys did, and balance that with? I can't just you know, airlift Gillette Stadium and paint it different colors in Houston?
1: That's a $25,000 question, right? <laughs>
0: yeah. we're,
1: we're all a product of our experiences, right? In our upbringing, right? right? Whether it's how yeah. we were raised as a child, what professional environment that we worked in. And, you know, again, there's so many things that I've learned being in Foxboro and learned from a lot of different people. And I mean, look, we can sit here and have an argument, but... It's one of the most successful franchises in the history of sports for a long period of time. And the sustainability for a long period of time is what's made it successful, right? So you try to figure out some core beliefs or some of the things that you feel are transferable, but each situation that you walk into is a little bit different, right? So like Silicon Valley, like you can't reduplicate what Google does from with some other tech company or tech startup, right? You may have some people that worked at Google, right? They take over a new corporation, And they take some attributes and elements of that of Google that were successful and try to apply them in their environment. Right. So I think it's no different. You know, we're going to be the Houston Texans. We're going to do what we feel is best for our organization. Um, And again, we're all a product of our experience and and where we've been. And you just try to take some of the uh, core attributes and some of the things that you feel are transferable, understanding that everybody has to be themselves. You can't airlift. It's like trying to buy a new house right in Houston. I can't airlift my house in Massachusetts and bring it in here to Houston. It's just <laughs> right. not going to happen, right? It's just not yeah. how life works. So um, again, so I think that's the most important thing. It's just to be who we are, do what we believe in, do what we think is right and and, and try to do it collectively, um, understanding that there's going to be some bumps in the roads and that's just natural. That's life.
0: That's interesting. So have you looked at that? Like you mentioned Google and different, like, have you, have you studied any of that? Like any of the non-football companies and how maybe like an executive from this company left to go to another, have you looked at that stuff?
1: Uh, y- yes. Uh, we've yeah. actually, I've done a lot of research and I mean, honestly, when away from football, I try to spend my time focused on things that have nothing to do with football, right? Mm-hmm. Cause football can be all consuming, right? Yeah. And there's so much information and there's so many different mediums and platforms, right? Like you got a podcast, right? You went from writing yeah. for you know a small newspaper in Boston. Now you got this <laughs> podcast. And like all important people, come on, I'm not important, but you just want the opportunity <laughs> to talk to me. But again, when you look at different organizations, and I would say more, it's not necessarily about organizations, it's about leadership, and it's about people, right? So I'd say one person that I've really studied quite a bit, not necessarily studied, but read his book is Satya Nadella, right? Mm -hmm. So Nadella took over for Ballmer at Microsoft, right? So when you look at Nadella, his personality is different than Ballmer, right? Ballmer had a way that worked for him and Ballmer is a successful executive that there's been and he transitioned out and then Nadella took over and he's tried to do some things that he feels are in the best interests of their organization of what he believes in, right? And when you see a guy like Nadella, it's about empathy as a special needs uh, child, right? So he's learned some things and how he's built his culture and what he's put in place are things that he believes wholeheartedly in, right? So, and when you look at the transformation that Microsoft has made just as an organization going from Office 360 to the cloud, to all these other areas, right? And they've been able to sustain and if, if anything actually grow and transition into sort of a new era, right? So again, what you try to do is you sort of look around you, right? There's no necessarily one size fits all or one perfect way, but I'm certainly intrigued by leadership models and organizational behavior and, and try to spend as much time learning and educating myself on that. Um, and that's the only way that we're going to grow as people is to spend time learning things that maybe we're not aware of. And you might come across them and say, Hey, you know what? I've never thought about that. Right. You know, maybe mm-hmm. there's an application an arena that, that we can use. So um, again, I think, studying leadership, studying organizational behavior. Um, I just finished um, Adam Grant's Think Again, right? Which I think, you know, you look around and it's like everybody has a comment about the book, right? Yeah. But the ability to rethink, reshape, adjust as you go, um, I think that's reflective of the society in which we live. And the more that you're cognizant of that, and the more realized like that's reality, okay, like mm-hmm. that's how we're going to sustain and survive moving forward. And again, understanding that where we are now, <laughs> two or three years from now might be a little bit different, right? So what can you do to maybe try to stay ahead on that? So I guess the best way to sum that all up is just try to stay as progressive as possible. And maybe what we're doing is a progressive model of some of the things that that we learned, that I learned in New England. And again, it's not, you just, you know, air, like you said, Bert, like you airlift one thing and all of a sudden, you just, you can't reduplicate because circumstances are different, situations are all different, right? So you just have to assess where you are currently, take the information, process it, okay try to put good systems in place and then just keep moving forward and i think that's the most important thing
0: okay last couple things like number 1 you talk about that organizational philosophy being progressive changing things like what do you, is there a quality and i know that there's some guys in the building you have background with obviously you knew billy o'brien well um, romeo cornell like there's a lot of carry over there like with the new people in the building, is there something that ties them together? You've made a lot of roster moves. Like, is there something that ties all of them together that's reflective of, like you talked about, that culture that you want to build there and what you've learned and what you want to be um, in your time in Houston?
1: Yeah, so, I mean, we've added, I don't know, 30 players, 30 players, whatever it's been, right? So I think the intent has been competition and opportunity, right? So here's an opportunity in front of you. Here's, and a lot of these players, for the most part, fall in a band of about, I don't know, three to seven, eight years. There's a few players that right fall on either side, right? A little bit younger, not younger, but, you know, maybe there's a little bit older. But here's an opportunity. Here's the competition in front of you, and just try to build as much depth on the roster as possible. Understanding that of the 30 or so players that we've signed, there's going to be another call it 10 to 12 new players, right? That come in the building at the end of April, right? Between the draft and undrafted players. So there's going to be constant, I would say, change and transitions, modification, but competition, team first attitude, embrace the, embrace, you know, competition, embrace what's in front of them. Um, I'd say, and the type of people that you are matters. So bringing good people in the building, whether it's, it's about people, right? We can talk about X and O all you want, but people matter, right? So good people, good process, good systems. And then that takes time. It's just not going to all of a sudden change overnight, but I would say having enough of those people that share that mindset and that mentality. um, And again, let the competition sort itself out. Like it's not going to be like what I think, right? Like who should do what this person should have this role. It's going to be about the individual. It's going to be about the player. So again, I think that's probably the most important thing or the one thing that, you know, is is been consistent with those players is try to get good people that some of them have been pretty good programs that embrace competition, embrace the opportunity in front of them. And are excited about coming to Houston, which quite frankly, a lot of players that we've talked to are excited to be here and want to be here. So that really speaks to what they want. Not necessarily anything that we're doing, but I mean it says a lot about who they are.
0: Okay, last and then coolest moment so far in three months as a general manager. Is there something that sticks out is like whether it was the coaching hire, whether it was a group of signings, like was there something where you sat back, you know, like all right, like I feel really good about where we're going now.
1: Other than getting annihilated for not liking barbecue, my opening, conference. <laughs> yeah, um,
0: I, did, I, I could have told you that wasn't going to go over
1: well. <laughs> I'm still getting razzed about it. People, uh, it's a guy that I work with actually said, Yeah, we got some barbecue over the weekend, but I know you don't like that so, Um, <laughs> no, I would say just as we, um, as we added the players to the team, the way that everybody within the building worked together kind of in unison and because the volume was massive, right? So here we are kind of a new staff with new people in a lot of different areas throughout the building, right? And just how smoothly that process went from the contract uh, component, then the players traveling here, then meeting with the group, um, you know, with Coach Cully messaging the group, hey, here's why you're here, here's what's important, and then getting them in the building the next day. You know there was you know some energy um, in the building, and I think there was some excitement. Again, it's not in any indication of what's going to happen or or, or things to come. But again, it just says that okay, hopefully we're moving in the right direction. Um, Ultimately, what happens on the field is going to matter the matter most. Um, But to see everybody's efforts sort of come to fruition and and adding that number of people and that volume of players to the team, you know, it's pretty cool to see. And really, it's a credit to all the other people in the organization and the various departments and shows that what they do matters and that their role matters and that we're relying on them and that we're going to do this together. And it's not going to be about one person. It's going to be about all of us. I'd say that's probably been the most, mm-hmm. um, you know, encouraging thing that, that we've seen to this point.
0: All right. He is Texas GM Nick Casario. This is normally where I let people give their Twitter handles. So you're gonna be joining soon, right? Like <laughs> you're going to call, you, you can call bill. He can get you hooked up on Twitter.
1: Between Twitter and Instagram, I, I probably, I mean, I know I'll get annihilated for this as well, but I could probably use my time more wisely than being on those. Again, I will say this. I've read a lot of people have left the platform and they've kind of gotten off and they've talked about how much better their life is as a result. So again, yeah, I wouldn't
0: know. I wouldn't know. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks for coming out, Nick.
1: All right. Thanks, Berg.
0: All right, thanks to Nick. That was fantastic. I'm sure you guys could tell. I could have gone a lot longer with him. Uh, But we had to get back to meetings, and we got to get to the six-pack. You guys know how the six-pack works. Every Tuesday, I put the call out for questions on Twitter. If I, I pick six, if I pick yours, you get a like, that means I hit that little heart button on Twitter and you get an answer here on the podcast. If I don't get to you here, I might have gotten to you in the mailbag. Mailbag goes up on Wednesday morning at the MMQB.com. Question number one for this week from Derek Nelson. That's at Derek underscore, um, sorry, at underscore Derek. And despite what John Mara has said recently, do the Giants have to make the playoffs to save Dave Gettleman and Daniel Jones? Derek, I would say with Dave Gettleman... They are set up now, where I think essentially they're going to have some people in place that are going to move into elevated roles whenever he's gone. And so, you know, I, I think for right now it's going to be sort of up to Dave when he wants to take a step back, whether it's to retire as a consultant, um, and it could happen after this year. And if they have some issues with the people they put on the roster. Maybe that gets accelerated a little bit. I, I do think that there's going to be soft landing for Dave Gettleman and how this is handled whenever um, he does decide to walk away. Um, they've got guys like Kyle O'Brien and um, and Kevin Abrams in, in-house in that they really trust. Chris Pettit's another one. Um, and, you know, on the outside, there are people like Monty Austin, Fort in Tennessee, who are connected to Joe Judge. Um, as for Daniel Jones, I mean, look, like I, – I, I know John Marrow wanted to give Jones a, uh, a vote of confidence there a year from now, he's going to be at a very critical point in any young first round quarterbacks timeline, which is after three years, the team has to make a decision on his 50 year option. He's also eligible for an extension. So they got to make a decision whether or not they want to pursue an extension so they can say whatever they want. But after year three, you got to show your cards. Because, especially now under the new CBA where those 50-year options are fully guaranteed, I, the the Giants are either going to have to recommit to Daniel Jones for probably somewhere around $20 million for 2023 at that point. Then they're going to have to make a decision on whether or not to extend him. If you don't pursue an extension, then you're sending a signal of how you feel, that you're not totally sure. Or you decline the option, and you're in the position the Bears were last year with Mitch Trubisky, where everybody knew... like he may not be long from here for here. And so I think, you know, where they are with Daniel Jones right now is trying to get the final answer. And I think that's part of the reason why they acted so aggressively in putting pieces around him this off season, guys like Kenny Galladay and Kyle Rudolph. And that adds to a group they already have. they have invested in the offensive line, both with trap picks like Andrew Thomas and free agents like Nate Solder. They've got guys in the roster. They've developed who they've paid. Um, in you know, in Sterling Shepard being a good example of that, Saquon Barkley, of course, you know they think he'll be back healthy, and so they got to get answers on Daniel Jones because of where they're going to be um, contractually with him after the year. And I think you know part of being aggressive, is, as aggressive as they were, is an effort to try to smoke out some of those answers. Take uh question number two. This is from Josh Hine. That's at Joshua Hine. What do you realistically think will be available for the Detroit Lions at pick number seven? Sewell, Chase, Waddle, trade down options. So the way I look at this, Josh, I, I still think like the top two non-quarterbacks in this year's draft probably Jamar Chase and Kyle Pitts. And well, we'll talk about this in a second. Like st- some teams are uncomfortable taking tight ends that high, uh, but you know, I, I like I think that the likelihood is in some order Chase and Pitts go five and six. And so what the Lions are going to be looking at is any lineman they want. So that could be Panay Sewell. That could be, um, that could be uh, uh like a, a, a Rashawn Slater. You know, you're looking at the smaller receivers who typically smaller receivers don't go in the top 10, Devonte Smith, Jalen Waddle. And you're looking at, you know, maybe a corner like a JC Horn or a, or a Patrick Sertan. So, And I think you look at the options and then you look at like where Brad Holmes, the new GM came from, where Dan Campbell, the new head coach came from, you know, the Rams, the Saints invested in offensive linemen constantly. And so I wouldn't be surprised if it's Pitts and Chase with those fifth and sixth picks, if the Lions invest in the offensive line and put a Panay Sewell or a Rashawn Slater on the roster. Question number three from Ferris, that's at he, W-R-I-N, underscore 10. Why are tight ends so undervalued? That's what I was was saying we were going to get to. Aren't they like having an offensive lineman and a wide receiver and one player? Ferris, you are preaching to the choir. It's interesting because tight ends generally don't go in the top five. The last time a tight end went in the top five, I believe, was 49 years ago, 1972. It's only happened twice. Um, One was the, and I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but it was a Bronco in 1972. The other was Mike Ditka. And um, generally they aren't paid the same way you see the franchise tag numbers. They aren't paid the same way guys are, um, you know, at the receiver position at the, even at like, like some of the running backs. So why is that? Well, I think it's because they're harder to find. I think it's harder to find guys who can do everything. And that's why somebody like Gronk is so valuable. And that's why somebody like George Kittle is so valuable uh, because those guys can do everything. And those guys are chess pieces and you can play different sorts of different. I, you can be in 12 personnel and still have it feel like 11 personnel. You can be in 11 personnel and have it, you know, like, like I like have that be sort of a run formation, you know, it gives you so many different options. And so that's why looking at somebody like Pitts, who is a, I mean, like as a pass catcher at that position, I think generational is the right word, and I don't like throwing that word around. But generational is the right word at that pit for, for for like he's that sort of prospect. Like he's also a willing blocker, needs some work, but he's a willing blocker. And so and you can't say that for everybody at that position. So you know, like I look at somebody at Pitts, like Pitts, and I'm running to draft a guy like Kyle Pitts, and I'm with you. I do think tight ends are 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 undervalued, and it's not a coincidence that you see teams that generally are seen as intelligent teams, the Patriots, the Eagles, the Niners, the Saints, that have constantly sort of fed and invested in that position. Uh, question number four from Tom Marshall, that's at Red Zonok. Uh, Are we really expected to believe the Niners will pay $25 million to Jimmy Garoppolo heading into 2021? Yes, Tom, here's why. Doesn't matter what his market value is. Um, he is right now the only veteran option the team has in the roster. The only guy that they feel like they can trust the position right now on the roster because they whatever rookie it is isn't in the building yet. And in free agency, they went out and they brought basically everybody back. Like they they got Jason Verrett back, they got Trent Williams back, they got Jacory Tart back. Like that they they brought the whole band back together. So they have a, they feel like they've got a championship team. Right now, they've got a right to feel that way. They were in the Super Bowl 14 months ago. Last year, they contended into December with a team that probably had the worst injury situation in the league. And if you are them, if you are them, and you look at this situation, say we have a team that we think can win a championship today, isn't it worth it to keep Jimmy Garoppolo as an insurance policy on your roster when you still have the fourth most cap space in the league? And you haven't even I mean, been face-to-face yet with your quarterback of the future. You don't know what it's going to be like when he gets in the building in May and June. Like, I absolutely think that it makes sense for the Niners to hold on to him. The Niners are in a position where they're trying to serve both the present and the future. Serve the future by going up to get the quarterback and serve the present where they think they can win a championship. And to do that, I think you sort of have to hold on to both quarterbacks. Now, maybe you get to June and July and August, and now we're talking about something else. And the rookie blows everybody away and is ready to play week one and you can find a veteran option to back him up, you know, like or somebody comes along and blows you away with a first round pick and you say, okay, like we'll move him for the first round pick and we'll go get like a like a Gardner Minshew or someone out of Jacksonville. But as of right now, the way things stand, if I'm the Niners, it's just not worth it to me. Like a third round pick isn't worth putting the most important position in a precarious spot with what I believe is a championship roster. Question number five from Louie. That's at Louie underscore rock. Could the Jets actually consider drafting a quarterback at two, presumably Wilson and keeping Darnold on the roster to compete in camp? Yes, they could Louie because Sam Darnold is on the books for less than $5 million this year. The Jets have cap space. This would all be very manageable if they wanted to do it. And, you know, potentially you say, okay, we'll let them compete. And maybe Darnold plays his ass off. Looks great in that offense. And you can move him at the trade deadline. So I I don't think it's impossible. The idea that you would do that is impossible if you're not getting anything better than a third or a fourth round pick for him right now. I think if the Jets had been offered a second and something else by now, he would be gone. Like I think they would have already moved him. I don't think they've gotten their price. And I think, you know, getting their price is going to be a major part of this. And sure, I mean, I don't think they'll pick up the option. They draft Zach Wilson second overall. I think they, they definitely decline the option then on Sam Darnold. Uh, but do I think they could keep him around? Yeah, and for the same reason I said with Garoppolo, like, what's a third or fourth round pick really worth to you? Yeah, you know, or would you rather have the flexibility to sit your rookie? to maybe add value to the quarterback you've already got in your roster. That's the way you got to think about it. You can't just think about it like, well, oh, what's the best offer they can get right now? Finally, question number six from Michael Mannix. That's at the O Mannix. When does, Des- when does Deshaun Watson play his next NFL game and for which team? Michael, I think a suspension is on the board now. Um, you know, I think we could be looking at like a Ben Roethlisberger suspension if, you know, the stuff checks out. And our Jenny did a really, really impactful story on Monday night on this. Um, you know, and obviously we have, I think it's 20 lawsuits now, um, you know, so my guess would be if there are no criminal charges, uh, we may be sitting here and looking at like the, the, Deshaun, the, the, the Ben Roethlisberger suspension from 2010, which you'll remember was six games with um, the ability to knock it down to four if he met conditions. Ben wound up meeting those conditions, the suspension got knocked down to four. As for which team? I mean after you guys heard Nick some of the stuff that I know um, it wouldn't surprise me if he's moved with some picks conditional on him playing and maybe even soon so you know we'll see I think that that, that, that right now there's a lot up in the air question two is like can the Texans get fair market value for him with all this stuff going on, which remains to be seen. But maybe adding some conditions to a potential trade would help you out there. Appreciate you guys coming out. Um, Always, always, always remember to to, to get us all your feedback because we want to make this the best show we possibly can for you. Um, You guys know where to find me on social, at Albert Breer on Twitter, at Albert R. Breer on Facebook, at Albert underscore Breer on Instagram. And you can leave us a rating and review on iTunes. That really helps us out, helps people find our show. Um, you know, also helps us with all the algorithms and all that other stuff that I, I don't really understand. Uh, and always remember to listen to all of our podcasts, my podcast, The Albert Breer Show, Jenny and Connor's Weekside podcast, and uh, Gary Grambling's Monday Morning podcast. That's on the original MMQB NFL podcast feed. All three of those feeds are on Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, Apple Podcasts, wherever you guys get your shows. We are there. Same time next week. I'll see you guys then.